This is Brian Gitt. My name is Patrick Moore. This is Dr. William Mackis. This is Bruce Party. This is Tom Luongo. This is Steve Barber, and you're listening to the Sean Newman Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, folks. Oh, man. Friday morning. Uh, happy Friday. And I'm doing this thing where no uh, the whole no screw up things. I, I get in my own head. Hey, either way. First off, let's go here. Uh, <clears throat> quick dick. Twos live at the uh, Gold Horse Casino November 5th. There is roughly 30 tickets left. Uh, there's nine days left to get your ticket. Go in the show notes, click on the, the link, and, uh, and, and that way you can purchase some. You got until October 30th uh, if you decide to or not or whatever. Three, 30 tickets or three tables left. That's, that's all that's left for the show. It's going to be a fun night, a uh, full meal, and the, and the whole deal. Uh, comedy and then a live podcast. Should be a fun night. I'm, I'm excited for it. So if you're looking at that, uh, you got nine days left to decide. There isn't tickets being sold at the door. It's, it's, uh, you got a pre-book. So uh, hope to see you there. Uh, and like I say, only only a few days uh, left to uh, to get your tickets in, um, your purchases in for tickets. Anyways, you get the point. Uh, but today we got an interesting one. Uh, before we get there, upstream data. Let's get to our sponsors. Upstream data uh, episodes one sixty three and three one eight. I finally wrote in three one eight. I don't know why. I just had Stephen Barber on. Uh, he is the owner of Upstream Data. And if you want to get a feel for the company, I suggest you go back and listen to those two episodes. You get you know if you go back to one sixty three, you get a real feel for. Um, you know, who he is and what he was trying to do with upstream data. And then uh, 318 is more of the philosophy and, and some of his world outlook. Either way, it's super cool. And since 2017, they've been pioneering uh, creative solutions for vented and flared natural gas at upstream oil and gas facilities. Uh, essentially, Bitcoin mining operations put out to use up waste gas, but it's it's evolved since then. And you can find out all of what they do at upstreamdata.ca uh, and see what they're all about. Uh, Rectech, for over 20 years, Rectech Power Products have committed to excellence in this power sports industry. They offer a full lineup, including Can-Am, Ski-Doo, Sea-Doo, Spider, Mercury, Evner, Mahindra Rocks are, uh, you know, as we close in on, uh, you know, I keep saying first snowfall, but geez, how nice has it been? Uh, I feel like a few people have probably been out uh, hitting the trails and quadding and whatever else uh, while it lasts because it has been beautiful. But I assuming, you know, you, you need a little TLC for, for your, your different uh, ATVs and such. Uh, the parts department is open uh, Monday through Saturday. The full showroom's open Monday through Saturday. Or you can just hop on rectechpowerproducts.com to see what they got going on and see what they can offer you. HSI Group, they are the local oil field burners and combustion experts that can help make sure you have a compliance system working for you. The team also offers security, surveillance, and automation products for residential, commercial, livestock, and agricultural applications. They use technology to give you peace of mind so you can focus on the things that truly matter. Just stop in today, 3902 52nd Street, or give Brody or Kim a call at 306-825-6310. Uh, Gardner Management is a Lloydminster-based company specializing in all types of rental properties to help meet your needs, whether you're looking for a small office or, you know, you got uh, you need extra space. Give Wade Gartner a call, 780-808-5025. Now let's get on that tail of the tape brought to you by Hancock Petroleum. For the past 80 years, they've been an industry leader in bulk fuels, lubricants, methanol, and chemicals, delivering to your farm, commercial, or oil field locations. For more information, visit them at hancockpetroleum.ca. He's the editor-in-chief of the Canadian Patriot Review. He has authored the Untold History of Canada book series and the Clash of the Two Americas trilogy. In 2019, he co-founded the Montreal-based Rising Tide Foundation. I'm talking about Matthew Errett. So buckle up. Here we go. I'm Matthew Errett, and you're listening to the Sean Newman Podcast. 
Welcome to the Sean Newman Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Matt Errett. So first off, sir, thanks for hopping on. Hey, thanks for having me on, Sean. You know, um, one of the wonderful things about a podcast is I, uh, I I interview somebody and then they're like, oh, you got to have this person on. And then I interview that person and they're like, oh, you got to have this person on. So this all started back with uh, my brother suggesting Tom Luongo and then led me to Alex Craner, which has led me to you. So um, I don't know where this ends, but uh, I'm having a little bit of fun along the way and learning a lot. And so I guess for the audience, maybe they know who uh, Matt Errett is, but let's assume they don't. Uh, I'll let you have a, a bit of the floor here and, and let's, let's hear about a little bit about Matt and, and, uh, we'll, we'll jump off from there. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, in the, in the quickest possible way, I guess I could say, uh, my bio, I'm, I'm the editor in chief of the Canadian Patriot review. It's an, it's an online news magazine. I, I began, uh, back in 2012. Um, I had, I'm also the, the co-founder and director of the rising tide foundation as a nonprofit organization, uh, with my wife. Um, here in Montreal, uh, Cynthia Chung. She's also a writer at uh, Strategic Culture with me. Uh, it's a, a Russian uh, news outlet. And uh, the Rising Tide Foundation is a little, little bit more of an educational, cultural um, platform, whereas the Canadian Patriot and most of the other stuff we do is a lot, a lot of historical geopolitical analysis material. Um, I had originally started this back in 2012, because I had been on a, on a project with a few like-minded people to piece together what the, what the hell is Canada? We were, we were operating in Canada. We had a little political, a little bit of political activism that we were doing with the Canadian outlet of the, uh, the LaRouche organization. It was maybe eight or nine people. And we were, um, you know, talking about some big ideas with Canadian citizens, some Canadian policymakers, but we didn't really understand what was controlling Canada art we didn't nobody did the work to understand the history of Canada so there you know there wasn't and there was a bit of a disconnection because it was an American organization but here we are with a small Canadian office um trying to tell Canadians that they have to impeach Barack Obama and you know it's it's like you're trying to organize Canadians to do something like that it's there's a disconnection right you're not going to get any traction so we figured we have to figure out how how to customize these these concepts so that it could empower both Canadians and, and again, policymakers. So for a couple of years, we were doing a lot of this work and we're making a lot of big discoveries on uh, the hidden history of Canada, but we couldn't get anybody, including within the organization to look at it. We couldn't get anybody outside of the organization to publish it or touch it because uh, a lot of sacred cows were being, were being busted up. So I decided, you know, well, I might as well just start my own media platform. And, and that became an online journal. Well, actually we were publishing it too. And it was getting some uh, some pr- pretty good um, pretty good followers, a lot of activity. Um, it got taken down for a couple of years, and I revived it in 2017 after Trump after Trump was elected, because uh, there was all of a sudden a hunger for this sort of thing once again. And um, the 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 discoveries that we made on history um, became a four volume book series that I, I published called "The Untold History of Canada." volume one to four, sort of going through the whole, like reconstructing the whole story from 1774 until the present uh, with a more critical eye to the roundtable movement, certain British operations, because the, the idea was, you know, well, we're, all of the, the accepted history books assume that Canada is a thing as, as if it exists as a nation state. And it's like when you actually look with a, with a critical eye towards what's actually the oligarchical structures controlling our present and our, our past, you realize now Canada is never permitted to ever become an authentic nation state. It never, never was the case. 
There was always a deep state. There was always a shadow government tied to the crown, the Privy Council office, all of these weird Byzantine structures always there with certain key think tanks like the Roundtable Movement uh, set up by Cecil Rhodes, Rhodes Scholars who were installed to, you know, impose and maintain a certain policy over many generations. Uh, just like in the United States, you can't really understand the worst of what the U.S. did throughout the 20th century if you don't pay attention to these operations, which most people don't, unfortunately, highly interconnected with Canada. So anyway, that became that. And then the last thing I'll say is um, some of that research over the years also made a lot of material for a three volume history, a series of history books that I also wrote this time with my wife starting in 2019 called The uh, the Clash of the Two Americas to give get across more of an, a, an appreciation, both for an international audience, but also for Americans, that uh, there's not really one, like the USA after 1776 was never a, a final product that was just finished, but rather you always had like sort of these, just like after World War II, you know, you have these, <laughs> these Nazi stay behinds that were absorbed by US intelligence and, and British intelligence to carry out the Cold War. They, that was called like, I think it was given the name Operation Gladio. Sort of the same thing after 17, 1783. Um, you had sort of British loyalists stay behinds masquerading as if they were American patriots, but always being loyal to the British Foreign Office with the mandate to uh, undermine and destroy the United States from within. And that gave birth to things like Wall Street, um, most of the, the worst elements of U.S. intelligence after the death of, of um, uh, McKinley. Thank you, baby. Um, sorry. After the death of McKinley um, in 1901. So you had things like the, the FBI set up, a lot of these other Masonic operations come into play here, always directed by, again, a British hand behind the scenes. And that became the entire 20th century. So again, that's the three volume Clash of the Two Americas, soon to be four, four volumes in about a month or two. I'll have volume four up. So yeah, that, that's that's my quick, that's me. You Canadian? Yeah. Where, where was you from? Montreal. Montreal. All right. Quebec talking to a Saskatchewan boy. All right. I like it. Um, <clears throat> okay. You just, this is what I was saying to the listener, me and, me and Matt were talking before we started and I started going down your website. And I, it's uh, superbly done. First off, like I was re reading, I started listening, and I'm like, there's just like I could spend. It feels like not an encyclopedia, Matt, but kind of right. Like just, oh man. So if a listener wants to go do that, uh, all the power to them. And I think I'm gonna slowly start dabbling because uh, it was fascinating. But for our time here, I'm going to try and pull us back. To a couple of things you just said, um, but let's start when you start working in this. Uh, I think I think you said think tank or something like that. Uh, this group, you know, as you started doing the research, did you have like, oh, I know what's actually going on, or you were like, I don't know, green as at the gills as possible? No, I I knew that there was. I had, I had already. This is I started doing this research in twenty two thousand and seven. And I, I had been through my personal, um, you know, taking the red pill thing, you know, going down my rabbit hole. What, and, what, what was your red pill? What, what, what happened oh, to you? That was, that was when then. I was, I was, I was a, I was a, a university student um, studying 
in fine arts. I was actually working on, on animation, film animation. I had already gotten a degree in, in uh, illustration and design. So that was, that was my path. I, I didn't really have an intellectual identity. I didn't like reading books. You know, I was already 1920. I wasted a lot of time <laughs> with everybody telling me, you know, you're right brain. You're a, you're, you're an artist type. You don't have to, you don't have to be analytical. So I, I was brainwashed by that garbage. And, uh, you know, so I found myself on a team and, and part of what I had to do was piece together a, a small element that touched on 9-11 for a documentary. And I, I just decided to start watching a couple of, I didn't know anything about 9-11. I was maybe, you know, 18 when it happened. I, it was, you know, but I, I was sort of a believer in the accepted narrative. And so I downloaded a few lectures um, from BitTorrents. Remember that? BitTorrents. And uh, We're, we got to be, we got to be close to the same age. What, what year did you graduate? Well, how old are you? I'm I'm 39. Yeah, 36 on this side. So you're just a smidge older than me. But yes. Anyways, right. carry on. So yeah, that that was uh for those those younger than 30 <laughs> right now. Bitcoins were uh, something that that woke up a lot of a lot of people who were uh, 35 to 45. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, basically I downloaded a few of these lectures and and um, had my mind blown by some people who were rather competent researchers and who who challenged the the big narrative. And at least they didn't give me, like, I didn't have a full sense of the picture, but that was my original crash. I was like, damn, everything's a lie. And so I, I went on that path for a couple of years, um, you know, which just, you, you just follow the thread and everybody has, I think, a very similar set of experiences who have been through it that way. You know, bet, it doesn't take you long before you stumble on, okay, this didn't come about overnight, that there's something, there's an agency so powerful that has taken over a government right to the south of us to the point that this thing is willing to kill its own people to get these political effects. And it's like that, again, it's not overnight that this is something which you soon discover, okay, this goes back many generations. It's tied to the financial system. It's tied to Wall Street. And so you start piecing together, okay, the Federal Reserve story. And I'm still trying to, I was, I didn't have a, a, a broad sense of hope, obviously, but at least I had more of a <laughs> a sense of like, okay, it's really bad. And people are, are being uh, mentally uh, manipulated to, to walk into a slaughterhouse. So that bothered me. Um, but I, I, at a certain point I stopped talking about it because I, I was like, I was just too far gone. I was like, I, I was really what you would call black pill, you know, and black pill just means, you know, you've gone further than the red pill. You're, you're just like, everything is controlled. There's never been hope. We're all, we're just perpetually yeah, they're too powerful. Very yeah. nihilistic. Very nihilistic. Yeah, they've, they've got secret knowledge. They, right? The big they, they have yeah. secret knowledge. They're so far above us. We're just, just try to try to just enjoy it. Enjoy the show. Eat your pizza. <laughs> get by it. You know? So I, I was like, every time I was doing a pretty good job explaining what I, what, what research I was doing to people in my world, if I did a really good job and I convinced them, I just made them depressed. And, and usually I was making people just think I was crazy. <laughs> So, <laughs> so I was like, neither one is useful. So I shut up about it. And I, I made a point that if I ever do come across an empowering way of looking at this, I'll talk about it again. But I, I spent about a year just keeping my, my mouth shut or longer. And that's where I was on a, a cigarette break. Um, uh, I was working a little job at Concordia University in Montreal, and I was on a break. And then th that's where I saw that one of these political tables uh, that was hosted by that Canadian branch of the LaRouche um, organization. And there was a few younger people um with their signage you know re referring to stop the depopulation agenda they had the literature and i was like okay i i, I could talk to you so I, I i had that conversation and and though i thought there were still things that they were completely wrong about um i was like at least you're doing something and you you have at least acknowledge things that everyone else is ignorant to so i was like okay 
I'll, I'll come around. I, I volunteered for a little bit at their organization, at their office. And I, I found that the ideas were really good overall. Like there was a strong sense. And there was also this old guy, for those who don't know, LaRouche is an older, well, he died in 2019 at the age of 96. And uh, I thought I was pretty well informed, but I'm like, this guy's been around po- politically running for the presidency like eight times. Um, he was the advisor to like the, the Mexican government, the Lopez Obrador. Uh, he was the advisor to uh, Indira Gandhi of India. Of, uh, like, I was like, this guy is such a, a, a like a force. How do I, who, who, who am pretty informed, not know about this figure? And every every time I would bring up, hey, to, to one of my, my fellow conspiracy minded friends, you know about this guy LaRouche? The, the, I would get this knee jerk reaction saying, yeah, it's a fascist cult if they knew about him at all. And I was like, really? Because I'm, I'm looking at the ideas. It's actually pretty good ideas. Uh, <laughs> and I'm like, what did you read that gave you this, this strong conviction? And, there, and it, it very quickly became, they didn't read anything. It's just like this weird aura of gossip. And I would, you know, go to Wikipedia and yeah, fascist cult. And I was like, wait a minute, what is Wikipedia? Like, what, why am I trusting them? So anyway, I, I realized very quickly, like there were some very powerful forces that worked very hard to paint a sort of, to create a, a, a mental electric fence around people's minds before they even looked at the name of LaRouche. And uh, when you actually look at his work since the 1960s, it's like pretty bold. He even went to prison in uh, the late 80s in an American like uh, high security prison when his whole organization was raided. He was shut down. 20 of his leading people were all put in prison. And the guy running it was Robert Mueller, the same guy who was in charge of taking down Trump under Russiagate, same guy. He was, he was up to his shenanigans back then too. Um, so I was like, so you, what, you, well, huh? <clears throat> why then are we so, you know, like when I hear that, I'm like, okay, so did not nobody else pay attention to that, Matt? Like why did he get, uh, why was he allowed back into another organization to uh, help? Or is it that powerful that people want him back in? And I'm talking well, Mueller. I think they, the, the time that he was put in, in prison um, was 1988. And he was, he was out. He was given 15 years at the age of 65. I think he was supposed to die in prison. He actually had a heart attack in there. But um, when he was l- let out in 1995, the, a lot had changed around the world. You know, like the world of 1998 and 1995 were two very different worlds. At that time, you know, the Soviet Union had collapsed. Um, the New World Order was um, was was announced publicly by Henry Kissinger and George Bush Sr. and Joe Biden in 1992. You know, like that was the end of history. The Soviet Union, before that, it was the bipolar age. And now it was the unipolar age was finally here. So I think that the biggest threat that LaRouche was playing in 88 was he was he had already been talking about the inevitable meltdown of the Soviet system and the need to take that crisis as an opportunity to set up a new type of system of cooperation based upon large-scale infrastructure development, science, technology. And that's where he was getting a lot of resonance, resonance with uh, leading figures in the private and public sector in Europe, Germany, Russia, US, who were all backing that, that approach, which was not in, in alignment with the thinking of those controlling the, you know, this new world order agenda. They, their, their idea is depopulation eliminate industri- the industrial productive base that supports and sustains human life. So their idea of it was, no, degrowth, de- deconstruct civilization, not, not this idea of overcoming limits to growth idea. That's bad. So I think they thought that they had enough control over the system such that when he was um, let out on bail in, in 1995, at that point, they were overconfident, I think, in their sense of power 
over everything. You, okay. Yeah. One of the things I, as a just a common man, sitting here and listening to it, I, one of the things I really struggle with is, and I've I've had I've I've, I've thought this question through so many different times, and we're not even talking a lifetime. We're talking, you know, you're talking '90s to now, which is what I mean, thirty. Two years, roughly, if you go from the start to the end, the end of uh, New World Order being uh, announced publicly and, and everything you just said. And I always come back to like, I so struggle with is it possible for uh, a family or families to carry out a vision of the future like consecutively through generations? Does that make sense? Like with inherited wealth and knowledge, like, you know, your parents taught you something and then you have the choice to either go use it or not use it. Um, same with me, same with all, all these, you get the point and money certainly puts you in a different playing field. Now you mentioned, uh, one of the names that just, obviously everybody just jumps on is, you, you know, Biden. You know, I mean like, oh, okay. So 30 years ago he was right where he was and now he's the president of the United States. So in a man's lifetime, when it comes to the new world order, that seems like a logical, like, okay, he wants this. But is this extended back further than the last 30 years? Are we going back like 100 years? And is it possible to have multiple generations of single families carry out the idea? Or is it just the idea can jump from family to family? Did that make at all sense? No, that's a great question. That's the best configuration of that question I've ever encountered in my life. Uh, no, it was great. Well, um, I appreciate that because I've been thinking about this question for like two effing years trying to get it out of my mouth. So there you go. Fire away. Oh, it, it paid off, but <laughs> no, that, that's a great, no. And, and it is the biggest reason why people today um, have been told there's no such thing as conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorizing has become like synonymous with almost a bad word. Now they'll say, okay, I, they, most people will admit that there are local mini conspiracies, you know, um, even Chomsky who denies that there are long-term conspiracy theories will say, okay, but definitely it's not an accident that the corporate, you know, um, the corporate elite that's running the media just happened to find themselves all in ownership of like all of the media, you know, in, in a tiny coterie of hands. That's not an accident that that didn't that happened by a, a certain type of a design. But again, in he will only allow like in a mini conspiracy, like it's it's very isolated in a time frame of maybe 20, 30 years, maybe 40 years. But nothing that is really connected to stuff that was happening in the 19th century or, or or earlier. Like, forget about the idea that things happening in the 15th century could have any impact on us like, today as a causal nexus on yeah the things happening today. Um, I think differently. Um, the reason, and I don't think it could happen just by some families. I don't think that the. I think a lot of the times, um, what's important is to. Properly take the time to define what we mean with oligarchical systems. Like often people use the word empire lazily, empire um, run by, you know, an alpha family or a few alpha families of nobles and then like auxiliaries below that, that rape, loot and pillage or something. You know, I don't know. Like there's, there's very simplistic ideas of empire. Um, I think that when you look at the actual structures of control, we are a society of storytellers and myths. So we, we are a society that runs by meaning. Animals don't run by their meaning as a species character, animals and bunnies and wolves. They just run by their genetic sort of impulses and the environment that they are born into. And that is really all they need. You know, there, there's 
as the dominant forces that determine like what's going to cause the behavior of a wolf to be a wolf. You know, they won't have memories of their great, great grandparent wolves that they're going to like keep in a photo album or something. And they won't make sacrifices for, they will make sacrifices for their babies in the present, but they won't make sacrifices for their great, great grandchildren, babies that don't exist yet. That's not a sacrifice the wolf will make. Although they, they have these very important attributes where they will, they will do things like, you know, squirrels will put food aside, you know, for the, so they do have a certain relationship to the past and present, but it's nothing comparable to the type of behavioral patterns that humans exhibit being a species that can choose to or not to make sacrifices for the future. Uh, though when we do, we're very, that's what you would call a mature, uh, integrated human being is a, is a human being who appreciates, they've taken the time to think about and appreciate their past, uh, you know, the past sacrifices they've, they've, They've modulated their their You have to get to that. My is stable. Can you? Yeah, you are cutting out. Uh, I got to uh, rabbits, wolves, and then it disappeared on me. And I, your video is oh, stuck man. right now. I thought my it was my are... eyes for a second, and then and then there you are again. Now you've come back. Now I've come back. Okay, basically, human beings have aspects where we're kind of like where we we have similarities to rabbits and wolves, but we have things that that rabbits and wolves don't have access to either. Sure, and that makes and that makes complete sense. Yeah, and and so what I was getting at is this question of storytelling and myths. So. Going, going back to ancient times, society has always been animated by stories of, of let's say, um, before the age of the enlightenment of science, you had the gods. And one of the ways that the oligarchy of, of like ancient Athens or of ancient Egypt was able to exert its influence or even Rome, when Rome really became an empire onto the masses was by either the portraying the idea that the oligarchical families in, in a dominant position were themselves gods, were themselves the immortals, you know, and you're just immortal. So why bother even questioning the authority of the immortals, right? Those above, they're like more than human. Just obey and be obedient. You know, you might get scraps. And that was one system of controls. Or inversely, that they would have messages from the gods. You know, you had like the cult of Apollo at the temple of Delphi in Greece that was an organizing cult. And and from that cult, you know, you 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 it was a, a what you'd call a geopolitical uh, center point for controlling wars, terms of peace, uh, alliances. So every king would go to the temple of Apollo at Delphi, give tons of gold and treasure to have the priesthood, the 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 the, the, the temple's priests, who <clears throat> would interpret the the doped up rap ramblings of a doped up girl who was yeah. like you know given essentially you know ethanol and, and other forms of like 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 there were forms of like steam-based drugs over a crevice and she was just rambling things meaninglessly and they would say okay a apollo wants you to go to war with persia or some other thing you know and they would take the money they would then receive intelligence because all both enemies the persians would also go there saying what do we do and they're like okay you should definitely declare a treaty with this this neighboring kingdom and they're like oh okay thank you that's what apollo wants you to do and so they would get intelligence from everybody and they also had networks sort of embassies in in each of the kingdoms generals would go there 
and uh, they would they would control the world's money wealth. They would give loans. This is sort of the center, the the, the origins of modern uh, imperial banking as well, too. You know, um, and they would then be able to control wars and peace. And um, and so the oligarchical families used these institutions at the at, at that time to maintain a certain power structure. And it wasn't just like the family. Sometimes families are stupid families with stupid people. But they, they, they need to be used as just part of justifying the hierarchy, kind of like today, the crown is the, the fount of all honors. That's the legal term for the crown as an institution that's more than the person of Charles or Elizabeth or, or Victoria. It's, so the fount of all honors is this, the, the source from which all authority in the, the British Empire, the Habsburg Empire had something similar in, in its time. It, it, so all authority for the, the, the law of every Commonwealth country comes from the fount of honors. You know, if the, the crown has to give or some representative uh, an assent to whether a law becomes law that's voted upon in, in commons by the commoners um, or rejected if inversely. Um, in in um, the Privy Council as well, same thing. Um, so over time, this this modified its, its system, but the oligarchy uses myths that are created and deployed both for the masses today, we've got a whole bunch of myths that have the, the, the surface covering of like pseudoscience in terms of health, health emergencies and um, the warming of the planet caused by a molecule CO2, you know, like these are not science. This is, this is more storytelling with a certain statistical veneer that is used to, to give it scientific justification. But as everybody knows, a good, a, a good statistic is better than Hitler's big lie, right? It could actually kill a lot more people if you know how to manipulate a statistic and it's harder <laughs> to see what, what the intention is. It's a great way to hide intention. So um, this is something which does maintain a continuity. And I think when you start getting into like, what are the the stories that, the, that, have, that have been created, which the elites over generations start even believing unto themselves. And LaRouche gave a really great, he wrote a a great essay in 1978, which I, I'll, I'm going to email it to you, and maybe you can make it available to your your public. But this yeah, is something I would love that, that. Yeah, sure. called the secrets known only to the inner elites, and it's got a it, it's it's like a 60 page wonderful essay with tons of footnotes, going from some deep history, going at how the 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 elites, the stories that the elite makes up, and I say the elite in the loosest term because they're not elite, they're they're inbred, but. Their, their biggest weakness is that they believe their own stories over time and they, they, they make themselves kind of dumber and dumber. So when you look at like some of the Masonic orders, like read Albert Pike's Morals and Dogma for the Scottish Rite and look at each of the stories in the degrees that, that is set up for each of the, uh, the rites of initiation. There's a whole set of new stories that you're given as you rise through and you, if you, I guess, pass the exams and you rise through the, uh, the, the degrees to a higher position of authority. Ultimately, you find yourself somewhere along the way, you thought you were entering in this brotherhood of, of goodness, you know, and, and a lower order. And somewhere along the way, I don't know when you've drank the, the baby blood, but you, you've sold your soul somewhere along the way. And you've deconstructed who you are. And it's, these types of things are designed to deconstruct people's identities of, as sovereign human beings to become conduits or instruments for something higher than themselves, which is just playthings for an oligarchical class to carry out uh, assignments that they themselves don't fully understand. Like, why was J. Edgar Hoover a 33rd degree Freemason? You know, was J. Edgar Hoover a, a brilliant guy? No, he was a cross-dressing freak, you know, who was just super hyper paranoid. But he, but for him, the, the, the Freemasonic 
commitments that he was a part of were everything. That was his his lifeblood. And it, it infused meaning. And he was just moved as a chess piece on the on the great game chessboard. So a lot of these people, um, they have hierarchies of degrees of knowledge and different stories that they think gives them meaning to life. The Rhodes Scholars as well have their own who are brainwashed in Oxford. They're, they're given, that's essentially what Cecil Rhodes was talking about when he said, we need to create a secret society for the, the British Empire, a religion of the British Empire and the secret society would be the thing that coordinates it to give vitality to the dying British Empire of the 19th century. And that became the Roundtable Movement, the Council on Foreign Relations was the British, the American branch of the British Roundtable Movement, which Hillary Clinton called the mothership uh, not, not that long ago. And all of the, the Rhodes Scholars who are brought from the United States, from Canada into Oxford, given a special set of bizarre experiences. Um, and, you know, they're conditioned, zombified, and then reemployed back into their home country to continue this thing. What? what? Yeah. <laughs> You're going so fast on me. Um, what, what, do you, what do you mean when they're brought in and given weird experiences? What the, what the heck are you talking about? I mean, especially, I mean, the type of educational experience you're going to get as a Rhodes Scholar in Ox Oxford is not the same experience that you'll get from the University of Manitoba or something, you know, like you <laughs> <laughs> or a community college in the U.S. It's there. there. So you're there are um, there are different classes of knowledge, knowledge for those who will wield scientific power and, and real political power. And then those who are expected to be drones who will have a different type of experience of what their education was. And from those who will be, not everybody coming out of Oxford is going to be a bad person. There's a lot of good people from Oxford, you know, but for those who are given, and there's, there's a few good Rhodes Scholars. I'm, I'm not saying everybody who becomes a Rhodes Scholar or who becomes a Mason is bad. Not at all. I'm not saying that. Or a Jesuit, not the case. There's a lot of good, good Freemasons, good, good Jesuits, good Rhodes Scholars. The difference is you're, you're put in an environment where now you've been like, you're under high examination and you're... Um, you're being tested along the way. And depending on how you respond to those tests given to you, in the case of the Jesuits, you know, you have every month or so you have your Jesuit, it's, it's a chain of command. So you have the higher uh, Jesuit um, superior above you who's constantly examining the lower Jesuit. And if, depending on how they pass, they will then be granted um, one answer that oh you know like two people who are who are being confronted with something immoral might say oh well oh you didn't kill the rabbit okay you very good you you obeyed your conscience you you passed to the higher degree congratulations and then the person who actually kills the rabbit they're like they get the response well oh you killed the rabbit you passed congratulations here <laughs> walk through this door please and uh and so you know, you've got these parallel. Um... So <clears throat> I go back to the original question. Then, Yeah. What you're talking about is a, a system that has been built that we just, even if there are people at the top pulling strings, they're changing out over time anyways. And it's just a system that's been built to try and control. Uh, no, there's continuity. There are family bloodlines. Some of the families that are dominant today as, as dominant elf. And, and for that, you, you have to really look at the, the black nobility, like the, the, the royal families of Europe. You're going to tend to find the the Calergies, the the Habsburg family is still a dominant family, even though the Habsburg Empire disappeared. You're going to find the Habsburg family in a whole variety of very powerful, dominant uh, think tanks across Europe that have been behind policies that set the groundwork for things like the European Union 
and every the other minstrosities. Um, the Windsors are are uh, currently a, a, at the moment the 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 first among equals. Um, but there's a whole network of of a, a limited number of these bloodlines, and some of them you could trace them back to the days of the Venetian Empire, the Byzantines. Some go back to the Roman Empire. Uh, leading families probably before that, but I don't know. I mean, it's it it's like they don't make a lot of this stuff public, but you can. The, the, and the thing is that there are certain insti- institutions that endure. The royal, um, the the royal academy was set up in the 17th century um, in Britain as one control, like a, a center that would maintain a continuity of policy of idea um, as much as possible over generations. Other other institutions were created that are transgenerational. The institutions can come and go. Sometimes uh, one family that is dominant at one time will become subdominant. Um, I don't see too many examples of families like the, the higher up families ever just disappearing from the scene perpetually, though sometimes they will bring in newer blood um, who are, let's say, you know, let's say that, for example, a, a person who confuses a lot of people are the Rothschild family. The Rothschild family is a relatively new family. Amschel Rothschild was just like, you know, a sociopathic coin dealer in the 18th century, like 1750s. He's not part of like grand strategy, but he he was assigned to carry out kind of like George Soros. You know, he like he, they're assigned to carry out certain tasks. They do them well. They do them so well, in fact, that they're granted um, a certain like what you'd call um, um, a, a family or, or a little dynastic mercenary assignment so their 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 family is promised certain um privileges to the degree that they maintain a certain family um mandate and they will with those privileges you know their kids their grandkids like will will also have certain expectations of them that they will be expected to abide by and they will be given you know mansions and and all of the hedonistic desires they want with yachts and orgies on yachts and whatever else and the, but they but they're they're always assignment like they're assigned to, and be and they're used like mercenaries to be disposed with at times if it becomes expedient to dispose of them they will they will they will have to accept being disposed of too. I, I I'm gonna go back to uh, <clears throat> some story arts and I'm gonna I'm gonna toss out a guess here and say you're a fan of Dune, the book. Well, Dune. I, I think it's an interesting. I think it's I think it's probably predictive programming in a not so honest way, but I think that really? it's more sophisticated. Then most people realize. Well, there's, I, I, there's a lot of. I just, uh, I just look at it and I go, to me, and I'm forgetting the family names, but the main character, right, doesn't want to go in that that family lineage. He doesn't want to be the, you know, the ruler of a world, but that's what's assigned to him. Uh, I just, you know, where we sit today with democracy and and freedom and voting and you know all these lovely things, you just assume that all that's behind us but i've never really given a second thought to the royal family i've never really given a a second thought to a lot of different things and the longer you know uh, i don't know the more i start to pay attention if you will matt the more i realize well i've been living with my head under a rock for a very long time because when i hear you start and you're not the only one i've had multiple guests uh come on and and talk about these different things i'm like i don't know jack shit that's where i sit (laughs) Well, that, you know that that's the that's the the first step to knowledge is is being aware of what you don't know. And most people, that's what Socrates even said. You know, like when he was being told to to drink the hemlock um, for for the crime of corrupting the minds of the youth, he's like, "Look, I'm not I'm not saying I even know really anything. I'm just trying to 
I'm, I'm just, I, I'm in a better position than most people who think they know things they don't know, but I just simply know that what I don't know. So in that sense, I'm, a, I'm in a pretty good place. And I help other people become liberated by the false delusion that they know things they don't know. That's a great gift I'm giving. So why are you going to kill me for that? <laughs> um, and I think that humility that comes with being aware of what you don't know is really liberating. And for me, like that was what I think helped me a lot. Because like I said, when I was starting to look at this stuff, I was 20. I never read a book for pleasure. And I didn't have an, an intellectual identity. So I didn't have like a lot of strong intellectual convictions about anything that, that made it sort of like, like they say, it's easier to like learn a proper way to play the guitar from scratch rather than having like spent years learning the wrong way and having to deconstruct the bad method and then like build yourself back up with a yeah. natural <laughs> method. That's a lot harder. Um so yeah, I think that, uh, that, and that's why a lot of academics and, and PhDs and stuff have, have a really difficult time breaking from their, the, the wiring that they've put themselves through over years in academia, you know, being trained to, to make your, your brain move in a certain unnatural way all the time before you're allowed to, to go out and have opinions about whatever, you know, uh, and be, and, and be published in peer reviewed books that then. It's like, no, you have to put yourself through something really unnatural for that. So it's hard to, de to, to undo that damage. Okay. Well, I want, I'm, I'm probably dense. So I'm going, to, I'm going to come back then to, like, we just went through two years of what I would think red-pilled a fuck ton of people. I, I don't think they could unsee half the stuff. And, and I think even a, a ton of people, you know, I, I joke about the Matrix, right? Like, where Cypher's like, just put me back in. Like, I'm just, I just want to go back in. Right. Yeah. And I, I like, I joke about it. Cause like at times you're like, fuck, I just, I don't want to hear half this stuff. I just want to go back in. Let me just, so a human being is a weird creature. That's a complete side story. I come back to this question though, of like, okay, where we sit today, has this been in your mind? going uh, running for 500 years past from generation to generation from this bloodline they added in a couple they dropped a couple but it's the main that's what it is or is this the idea of like human beings are a plague on the earth and certain people just gravitate towards that and for some reason it's people with a lot of money and a lot of influence and they okay. gravitate towards that because they want the control of whatever. Is that more the the idea? Because I just I I sit back and I'm I, I struggle to. It's a giant question, and I okay. struggle to answer it. I, and for some reason, I'm like stuck on this little tiny hill, or maybe it's a giant hill. I don't know. And I'm like I I can't seem to move until I figure this sucker out. Uh, okay, I I think the 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 real battleground is in um not just ideas, but in ideas about ideas. Um, at, at, you can't go more than that because then you start getting double negative or triple negatives and it makes no sense. So, but, but an idea is just an idea. Like I've got an idea of uh, my backyard, you know, it's, it's an object, you know, I, I can have an idea about a process, you know, it's just like a, a theory. You know, I, I think human beings are, uh, they, we're, we're, we're materially very similar to monkeys. And so, and we have, similar attributes to monkeys. So we're, we are monkeys. Um, that's an idea. Um, but, but you, an idea about an idea, an idea of ideas is where the fight's at. Um, you can get that a lot by reading some of the dialogues of Plato. Um, that's how, what is the idea? Cause there's not, how, how does the mind come from 
um, let's say, for example, ignorance to knowledge. Okay. So what are the, the actions that the mind does when it moves, when it transforms itself from a state of being in ignorance of something, whatever, to a state of like, aha, Eureka. Okay. Aha, now I know. Now, I, now, now the mind has a different identity of knowledge of whatever it is, right? Um, certain things have to happen. <clears throat> There's not an agreement necessarily on what that is. What are, what are those steps? What are, the, what are the processes that the mind goes through? Um, some people might say, oh, it was just divine revelation. You know, like they just had a, a dream. They woke up, they got the answer or whatever, you know, or they were in a car accident and then they came out of the car accident and then they had knowledge, you know? So that some people try to, that's called like faking it, like, like trying to fudge, fudge it. Um, so you don't actually appreciate that there are steps of like, we, we, we touched on one of them, self-reflection, a reflection on what, you know, taking account of what you think, you know, but you don't know versus what is an opinion that may be true that actually you just didn't prove, but it still is a right opinion versus those opinions that you both that are true. You prove they're true. They're thus knowledge, much more grounded, deeper rooted. You could build on that. You could play with that. You can't play with the other stuff. So the, the battle of ideas um, is really, really, really important. And so if you think like the oligarchy, one of the consistent characteristics of oligarchical structures, either today or 500 years ago or 2000 years ago, is an idea that human beings are, um, well, well are, are defined by masters and slaves, that the majority are born into families that will define define their, 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 determine their identities and experiences as a slave family with a set of rules that apply to them. You know, um, you will be expected to do what your father did, what his grandfather did in the guilds or whatever. And there will be like these absolute glass ceilings of, of where you, what you can't do areas. You can't go off the feudal plantation because the, you know, back, back in like the feudal times and don't, for anybody who's confused, what we're dealing with today, the, as far as like great reset ideas are, are concerned is just feudalism. It's a, it's a technocratic version of the old feudal romantic idea that the world was better in the 13th century when human beings were mostly illiterate talking cows who were extensions of the plantation and the feudal lords, the elites would live happily unchallenged in their castles, having their orgies. Um, and that sort of, crystallized hierarchy is like really romanticized. That's why Cecil Rhodes called his organization, his secret society, the round table movement. They got this idea of this romantic, you know, medieval round table idea. They, 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 they like that. They, they don't like the fact they ignore the, the absurdity of the fact that they didn't, you know, use even the elites didn't have access to soap or electricity or running water. They, they're not, you know, and they couldn't have created these things on, on their own terms. <laughs> they needed smart people from outside of their class to come up with the discoveries that they then try to steal. And they're happy to use those discoveries, but they don't have the means to, to make those types of qualitative discoveries themselves. But that's, that's an aside. Um, <clears throat> now, the fact is the entire structure of their power of their master slave system is premised around certain core fundamental assumptions. One of which is that authority emanates by a hereditary power so because you've inherited the property, the responsibilities, the, the other things from your, your family group, that is what endows you with the authority to then manage the herd because of something just within your genetic stock, within your blood, whatever. Um, 
and it, it's very obviously very racist, but it's very class. It's very much based on a class, a class system, which is also why they hate the American revolutionary idea. Cause the idea of the American revolution was the first time a nation had organized itself in an, in such a way that it rejected for the first time. It was always an idea, but it was never acted upon properly. That idea that authority is based on hereditary power from a sovereign. The idea was no, everybody is sovereign to be a sovereign country. Everybody is sovereign and that the authority comes from the consent of the governed. That was a very different and antagonistic idea, which the oligarchy has been trying to undo for a very long time. Um, <clears throat> the, um, part of this as well is that when we behave in a, in a creative way, which goes outside of the supposed limits that were, that are put in our minds. Like there's an electric fence of, of sorts that are, that the feudal serfs of the 15th century knew you're not allowed to, to, to hunt those rabbits. Those are the, the Lords. You just, that's an electric fence, right? Or cut down those types of trees. You can't do that. Or you can't leave from past that road. You can't do that. Or you could go to jail. Um, there, so we, we, there's always been these types of electric fences, but whenever you had um, cases, and there's a lot of cases of people who act like Socrates or like like St. Augustine or Dante Alighieri or Da Vinci, or you got these greats who are not born from elite families of pure blue, blo blue bloods, but they, they leap outside of their the norms, the mediocre norms that they're supposed to calibrate to. They, they make these exceptional almost miraculous types of discoveries that revolutionize all fields of literature, of science, of knowledge, of astronomy, of, of architecture, of everything. Of Look what da Vinci did, right? There's nothing he touched that he did not revolutionize, but he wasn't from a leading family. He was, you know, he was the bastard child from like a, a, a you know, a mayor, a, a, a basically a, yeah, his, his, anyway. Um, <clears throat> but he was able, he found guidance. He found a mentor um, who sought potential. And, uh, and he just became like, he tapped into the source really effectively. And a lot of people do that. Ben Franklin is another one. He's sort of like a, a Da Vinci type character of, of his own, of his own age, who discovered the nature of electricity. He created the first post office in Canada. The first newspaper of Canada was Benjamin Franklin, not even a British policy. Um, at the same time as he was building massive literacy for the people that he was trying to inspire to become better and, and created a new type of society. It took him like four, four decades to to do that work, but it became the American Rep Republic. So th what the oligarchy does, is not like they don't know that. They're aware of that. And I think that that's a point of insecurity uh, for them is that there are these constant reminders that human beings are not what they demand we be in order to justify their own existence. And so they have to work very hard at um, bestializing the culture, bestializing the arts, bestializing the education systems so that we don't have access to those higher, deeper uh, powers of what would both inspire us to be a human and also realize that there are no limits to growth. We are not a parasite. We are not a virus on Gaia, the way the old Gaia cults that, that animated the Roman empire into a, a, a guilt and shame cult. That was the thing. Gaia today, the whole Gaia religion of nature, earth mother nature worship that that is at the heart of a lot of unfortunately the Greta Thunberg is like a new aspiring high priest who who's being groomed to play a certain role um it's very much based on the same archetype of what was set up in the Roman Empire of these these at the time it was called the Sibyl cult of an earth my earth mother Gaia worshiping cult where human beings were perceived to be 
um, destructive anti-natural forces because nature is supposed to be static, unchanging and beautiful. Human beings are changing all the time. We build roads, we, we, we disturb the, the balance. And so we're bad, just like a cancer. And that formula, it's like, well, wait a minute, whoever said nature was static? Like, first of all, that's a big assumption. That's not true. Um, Cause like, yeah, deserts today are pretty static, but you know, a few thousand years ago, the Sahara desert was a lush green zone of, of biodiversity. What it wasn't industrial activity that caused that to go away. Um, it was bad decision-making in some ways, but it was also geological stuff we don't understand that caused that water to go under the Sahara. It's no reason why we can't make a blossom today or, you know, like billions of years ago, there was no life on the earth. Now there's tons of life. So if it was, if, if stasis was our natural order, we never would have had single celled life transform, move out of the liquids and, and become like, you know, this very interesting complex system that we have today. Um, so the oligarchy has this formula. Okay. Human beings change. Thus we're bad. Thus we're cancer. And, uh, the reality is no, I think that they just know that if we're wrapped in that sense of an idea that human beings are cancer, we won't be creative. We won't be Da Vinci's. We won't be Ben Franklin's. We'll be more inclined to be, uh, adaptive to situations that they control in a Darwinian world of diminishing returns. And then they could justify, Oh, look, we're overpopulated. Oh, look, well, you know, there's not enough to go around. So what have you thought of the last like three years, the COVID years? What what have you sitting there going, you know, watching this all play out? What did you, what did you think, Matt? Well, I, I mean, I, I had written um, a paper the first month of COVID saying like the, the coming economic collapse is not going to be caused by coronavirus. Um, it was something you could know was going to happen already before coronavirus. But what they've been trying to do is keep control of the chaos while they blow out the system. Cause the system was the system we thought was a, was a viable economic system that we've been living in and we were born into was never viable. It was already that when they killed John F. Kennedy and, and then they killed his brother, who was sort of the last big hope to turn the, keep the return the U S back to its constitutional roots in 1968. When they did that, there was a massive coup d'etat that was set up where the, the U S economy I mean, the dollar was floated from the gold reserve. You know, the, the U.S. economy was turned into increasingly a consumer society cult of unproductive, useless, basically a useless class. And the, the new logic was, OK, we're going to deregulate everything. We're going to strip nations of their ability to regulate the economy, to direct the economy the way all good things had happened before that time. And we're going to start worshiping a new set of logic, a, a new logic of monetarism. And uh, greed is good. You know, that whole thing that took over the 1980s. Um, well, that, that, uh, that was accompanied by the mergers and acquisitions of behemoth enterprises that, you know, converged in too big to fails in the banking system, Walmarts, media complexes, all the conglomerates. And they weren't done for money. If you actually look at those who were managing this process, these were officials who were people people who were high level uh, grand strategists on the Bilderberger group, you know, people like George Ball, who was a Bilderberger group um, director who called for the world company to be the, um, the framework. He, that was his, he gave a speech called the, on the world company in 1969 uh, so that you'd have the enlightened private interests of the, the, the elites, the, the best people who would then manage what human beings were too incompetent to manage themselves in a post nation state era of these, you know, so we'd have the appearance of nation states and the appearance of democracy, but none of the reality. 
And that was made possible by this consumer cultism. And in that logic that Henry Kissinger oversaw with the Trilateral Commission and David Rockefeller was another member of that, was that, okay, we're going to have um, part of the world will be the dirty workers who will have access to industry, but they have to stay poor. They will be the, the slave labor part of the world. And that'll be mostly like, you know, Mexico, uh, they, China will, will, will give them industries, but they will never be allowed to have to get out of abject. They'll have just enough um, financial resources to not die, but they won't have enough to buy the crap that they're producing. That'll all go towards increasingly our dollaramas. So all the things we used to do ourselves with high quality technology and high paid labor, that's going to be gone and will become dependent. We'll develop these systems of relationships of dependency where China needs Western money to stay alive. Same thing for Mexico and other countries. We need their, their products that they make because we don't make things anymore. And so our, our society became services-based, financial services, other things. And increasingly, we lost the ability to even build or maintain infrastructure, right? We just stopped investing in that. Um, and so then we create these bubbles, all of the, the wealth that we're looking at in, when we come out of macroeconomics in school, and we're taught to look at, at, at theories of interest and pricing and other things, all of these theories that we're being taught our economics are just associated with the financialization side of the economy. And so the money is growing, but the physical output, the physical production is decreasing. The infrastructure is collapsing. The food production quality is decreasing. So the ability to sustain life, the things we live in is atrophying while the monetary system, we're told, hey, we're, we're raking it in, you know, roaring, used to be the roaring 20s, now it's the roaring 90s. And it's just money is making money with debt. And, and you could speculate on debt with derivatives. You could insure debt and you could bundle the debt, it caught, put an insurance on the debt and then gamble on the price of what they're going to be in the spot markets or futures markets to make money really quickly, really fast with high frequency trading. You know, people can watch uh, the big short, the documentary, which is pretty good going through this in a nice way. Um, that was always designed to be a time bomb. It was never, uh, it was never designed by those who, who put the program into motion to be perpetual. It was designed to be a bubble and bubbles pop. And that was designed to also be the controlled demolition that they need. They want, they expected every nation, China, Russia, India, Iran, everybody was supposed to by this time when Biden was giving his new world order speech in 1992 and or saying, no, he was, it was an article for, I think, Washington journal, how I, I learned to stop worrying, worrying and love the new world order was the name of his article. Um, by this time, according to the original script, everybody was supposed to be, in like 1990s Russia, China was supposed to be 1990s Russia. Russia was supposed to always be 1990s Russia, which was basically, I mean, you know, a slave colony owned by George Soros. <laughs> that was 1990s Russia, uh, totally dominant, dominated by, by NATO. Um, Iran was supposed to have been wiped out already a long time ago. Like even Dick Cheney gave a speech in 1996 saying like, well, what would be your, your plan if you came to power? And he, he lists Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Iran, Libya, regime change in all of these places. And he puts a few other, Lebanon is another one. Uh, Libya, yeah, anyway, uh, but he actually like lists out exactly these countries that have to be turned into the dark age, into dark age zones. So we're out of script. And that's how I'm looking at it right now is like the oligarchy is, the, the world is not conforming to their ivory tower model of what they wanted it to be at this time of the coronavirus being sprung on us so that there would be a, the coronavirus itself, this is not going on YouTube, is it? 
Uh, no, I've been booted from YouTube, so it doesn't matter. Okay, okay yeah. So I, I'm used to censoring myself, but I, I went off. Okay, good. It's all okay. good. It's all good. So it served multiple purposes. Um, you know, I, I think everybody watching this is aware of like the fact that, yeah, there's been experimental. We've been a human, like a, a global human experiment for uh, a variety of gene therapies that have been thrown at us. So on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's, it's, it's been also a useful distraction to keep people in a state of um, total confusion, fear, uh, while all of these lies around the pandemic have been going on. You know, people have been agitated, freaked out. They're losing their jobs. Their, their economies are being shut down. Meanwhile, they're not actually organizing for any type of viable new economic uh, system the way Trump was moving us in a certain way. And Trump was, was a very imperfect guy. Don't get me wrong. But he was outside of the script at a big time. They really wanted Hillary in. And by 19, uh, 2019, Trump was making a lot of very positive moves towards breaking the World Health Organization, breaking the U.S. out of that, shutting down the U.S.'s... Uh, um, obedience to, the, to NATO, um, working to realign the U.S. economically with both Russia and with China. Um, he had just signed the U.S.-China trade deal where China was going to, to buy for the first phase $350 billion of U.S. manufactured goods to stimulate the rebuilding of the U.S. manufacturing sector, which had been destroyed by 50 years. Um, he'd been working to recalibrate the U.S. military with the Russian military in Syria. They've been working together, communicating and as the former ambassador to Ukraine, who, who worked to impeach Donald Trump, even admitted a few months ago on an interview that had Trump still been uh, permitted to be in power today, then there would be no uh, crisis in Ukraine because he would have accommodated Putin's requests all the way. And she said, that's why it's so good. This crazy bitch actually said, that's why it's so good that Trump is out. Um, it's insane. But there, and, I mean, Trump had also had a policy to, to help Alberta build the Alaska, Alaska, Alberta rail connection, connecting the lower 48 states to Alaska through Alberta, which was a, a huge boon to the economy, re, you know, build the Keystone and other major pipelines that would really help all of all of the continent. Um, so he, you know, that that was derailed and COVID really destroyed uh, a lot of that trajectory, that positive momentum, which we needed to have a viable um, coalition of nation states that could work together to break the oligarchy and, and establish a new framework of security and economic architecture that would not be under the control of the Davos uh, freaks. So that's, that's, that's my thoughts on COVID. Is there any hope then? Sure. But it's, it's, we're in a much worse, it, it would have been a much better situation if had Trump not been, um, if you didn't have a color revolution in the United States in 2020, obviously we'd be in a much better position. Um, and maybe I'm curious to see how much, how many scams. I mean, there's, there's probably going to be a big win for a lot of the Republicans who are not rhinos in the United States in the coming elections uh, very soon. I'm curious to see how that pans out because I mean, that's a lot of vote fraud that you have to maintain to make sure that that doesn't happen. Whether or not these people actually have the mental capacity to put policy on the table at this time in crisis that is needed, I don't know. They're, they're, they're good people. They're patriots, a lot of them, but a lot of them are, are very soft mentally to the, to, the, to the questions of real grand strategy. So I don't know. I, I hope so. Um, that being said, there, the country, there are a coalition of nations who exited the, um, 
the controlled demolition of the banking system. Like I said, you know, if it were if if you look at Russia, the reason why Russia is so targeted and has been encircled by a NATO, well, a U.S. NATO policy of of full spectrum dominance, you know, as well as China, like there's a hundred thousand U.S. troops with a big uh, missile shield around China's perimeter. They're they're trying to consolidate a a NATO of the Pacific, which also involves Taiwan playing the same role as Ukraine uh, served as playthings uh, for the the military industrial complex. Um, and China is going to have to probably go into Taiwan pretty soon. Unfortunately, the, the Biden just annihilated China's uh, microchip uh, uh, production system um, this week by making it illegal for any American to um, to work in the Chinese uh, microchip sector. Um, so he basically forced like all, tons of executives of, of China and, and and also canceled all U.S. supply chains towards the China microchip. So the only other zone <laughs> that that and China needs these microchips. Uh, the only other zone that has it is Taiwan, which is legally part of China anyway. And, and the U.S. State Department website still even admit, acknowledges that Taiwan is still part of China. But despite that, they're using it as if it were like a Ukraine uh, for the West to say, look, China is the big, the big baddie out to try to dominate the world and destroy democracy. And so anyway, that, that I'm curious to see how that plays out. But the reason why is because China and Russia, they're, 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 they didn't play ball. They kicked out George Soros. Russia kicked out George Soros in 2015. China kicked out George Soros back in 1989. They still have deep states. They're, they still have deep, deep state and fifth column penetration within both governments. Uh, but the difference being is that the, those, state the nationalists within russia china also within india who are not willing to sacrifice their their ancient civilizations have done a better job at doing battle with their deep states than we have whereas here like george soros and and (laughs) the 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 worst elements of humanity are running the show in the transatlantic zone whereas there you've seen a much more successful fight against it Um, in some cases they they lose little battles sometimes they accommodate certain things that are being expected um, by the, the, the depopulation cult. Other times they fight back effectively, but it's a, it's an ongoing process of fight. Um, so because you have a coalition of nations, again, Iran, China, Pakistan, India, Russia, big time, a lot of African countries and and Ibero-American countries are vectoring towards what's called the multipolar alliance, um, in opposition to the, to the unipolar alliance, which is dominating our part of the world. I think that there is a certain very viable reason to have hope for humanity at this point, because these guys, again, are not willing to sacrifice themselves. They're not willing to go along with the depopulation program. Um, That's all very good. But uh, I just don't know. I get a little demoralized when I just look at the configuration of leadership um, here in, let's say, the the North American part of the world currently. I like like some of the stuff that was said by the new uh, Albertan premier. I I thought that that was nice. Daniel Smith. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people are frustrated here recently because she's began apologizing for different things she said. And I know that's, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, I can imagine the pressure that's put on her being in that situation with seven months before an election against the NDP. Um, but yeah, she says a lot of great things. Um, but people are concerned because she's apologized for comments made about, you know, she talked about how the unvaccinated were the most discriminated against in the last in her lifetime. And, and uh, everybody came out about, you know, uh, what about First Nations? What about these? What about this? What about that? And it's like, I don't know how to say it eloquently because, it, you know, 
could she have said it better? Sure. Uh, I'll give that right here. Could she have said it better? Sure. Uh, she could have acknowledged some of the people uh, currently living on First Nations reserves and different things and how they've been uh, impacted, certainly. But when you talk about the unvaccinated, what I laugh about, I'm like, you realize that could be First Nations. You realize that could be black, white, any religion. Like, if you're in that boat, you were all discriminated against the same fucking amount. And I'm like, so when she says it, I don't know why anyone has to apologize for anything. She's saying, like, basically what we all witnessed. And for the first time in uh, in Canada, an official who has a, 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 a spot where she's going to be broadcast as broadcasted, says it. Like, just says it openly. And everyone's like, finally, thank the Lord. And instead what happens, instead of everybody just being like, oh, yeah, great. They just absolutely piled on her. Everybody piled on her about how, how you know, insincere, not insincere, how she, she didn't address uh, uh, the, uh, these people have been oppressed more and these people and these people. And you're like, fuck people. We, we, we just went through two years where no official would even acknowledge it. Just be happy we got somebody up on stage talking to the mainstream, which never allows any of that through. And they got to. Like, I mean, she's holding the press conference. She's going to say it like, this is awesome. Yeah, no, exactly. we can't be we can't ha- we can't be happy about that. Fuck. No, she trespassed beyond the electric fence. Um, but you need you need that. You know, I think at a certain point it becomes uh, contagious, as we saw with, uh, I, you know, the Freedom Convoy was a great point of con- of a positive contagion of truth, um, where I, I think that maybe I've seen the argument that some elements of the Freedom Convoy might have been um, pr- planned by forces that wanted to create um, a situation of violence in Ottawa to justify some very bad things, but they weren't able to, what they awoke was not anything that was expected by those actually in power in Ottawa. uh, You talk about the electric fence and actually I listened to you and Tom uh, Luongo uh, talk together and it was actually a pretty good little conversation. I was chuckling at Tom when he got into all his, different movies that he enjoys. I was, I was laughing about that. I didn't really, I didn't catch that out of Tom the first time me and him uh, talked, but you talked about the protective stupidity or the electric fence of the mind, kind of yeah. like you don't go there. And when I listen to you, I have, I have one set up and I, I, I'm, I think you've solidified it. Uh, the further you go down the rabbit hole, the more you, uh, and I'm, I, you can disagree with me on this, but to me, the more I follow and listen to people such as yourself that have gone really deep into everything. Go, you almost look at it pessimistically. And I, I go, in order to go there, I have to lose my optimism. And I think I can't do that because honestly, I was told Daniel Smith would never get elected. And I wasn't sure she would. Uh, and then she did. And I'm like, well, that's that's because people never gave up hope of, of having somebody. And I mean, I'm not putting the, the world on Daniel Smith's shoulders, folks. Yeah. Uh, just that it's the first person in Canada to at least talk like somebody from, I don't know, Florida that, that's been doing it for a long yeah, time. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, one of the things I, 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 I look at, Matt, is I go like, it can't, if this has been going on for hundreds of years, well, chances are it's going to go on for 100 years, you know, no matter what me or you think. Maybe I'm wrong on that. Uh, but I look at it and I go, you can't lose the sense of optimism that because I went to Ottawa. Ottawa was like, OK, how do we recreate that? Well, you piss people off to the point of no return and then they go do something like that. Um, 
but maybe I'm I'm a little uh, uh, naive to think that you can't understand all the forces at play. And maybe that's my naivety. No, I, I don't. I don't think you can understand everything. Like, there's no mathematical certainty um, that I think the human mind can know about nonlinear processes. Like, you can't know everything, but you can know principles um, that that are are that satisfy sufficient reason. You know, like like oh, like you know, a scale is 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 balanced. You know, like okay, well, why is the scale balanced? And you can say, okay, well, because there's like this exact number of grains of sand on this side as they're on this side. And it's like, well, you can't say it's the exact hundred percent number. Like maybe there's two gram, two sands, grains of sand missing, you know, but it's like in principle, it's this, it's cause it's a similar weight. And why is this one? Well, this, this side has a, has a heavier weight than this side. Um, that's sufficient reason, you know, so I can, I don't have to know the exact mathematical number, but I know that, you know, there's a certain principle of, of truth. And as far as your, your question on optimism. Yeah. I mean, I, it was a big, like like a big ch- uh, challenging experience for me also, you know, to spend my time in Ottawa during the Freedom Convoy. I, I didn't think that Canadians had that within them um, to do that and to do it well. And they did it damn well. Uh, there were a lot of provocateur, like provocations to try to get them to pick up these uh, pallets full of like bricks that were just laid out there, kind of like they did in the Black Lives Matter riots in the, in the United States where people were happy to use them and break things, but nobody did that. They just They just filmed it saying like, hey, there's bricks here. There's no construction. <laughs> Someone's trying to provoke something and they're challenging to, you know, they're basically threatening to take your kids. So of course they're trying to push these people to the limit so that they get violent so that they have an excuse to say, look, they were violent the whole time. They're all Nazis. They didn't do that. It was all based on love, very positive, positive sentiments. And so that was a very enlivening experience. And I made some videos on that. Um, whether or not people have to necessarily be, be smothered and, and drowned before they do something so beautiful. I don't, I don't think that, that, that we have to, um, <clears throat> because we, we had ultimately that could have gone bad. You know, if you didn't have wise leaders, people providing role models of how, how this works, you know, um, it could have, it could have been, there's elements there that could have been turned into a weaponized mob potentially if things had gone down differently, but you definitely need to have leadership. Um, Daniel Smith, I think, is a, another big one. You know, people said, oh, I'm not going to vote. They're all controlled. And then they're like, she'll never get in. And then she gets in. It's like, oh, yeah, uh, good. Remi-. So there's all of these things to remind us that the oligarchy is not as strong as they want us to believe they are. Yeah. Uh, that's Thank big- you. Thank yeah. you. Right there. Yeah. They, they want you to believe they are all seeing all knowing, hmm. except it's that's a little bullshit. Like, yeah, like it, it, it yeah. just it is it is. They got I won't get I won't knock this. They know how the game's played. They got a fuck ton of money and a ton of knowledge coming from, you know, if you've been in and around a world of uh let's just take hockey for a second. Uh, that that's my realm, right? Like there's certain things you're just like, Oh yeah, that makes sense. And there's certain things that if you've played a lifetime or uh been around the game, you just understand some inner workings. It just comes naturally because you've been in that realm. So if you've been playing the game of uh, the chessboard, and I, I equate the chessboard to to politics and and big business, pretty much. Uh, if you've been in that world, you understand how certain things work more so than the guy who just goes does the job or hops on a podcast and and talks. You know, like you just you have a, a different insight into how things uh, go, and you get to control certain things. Yeah, but like I mean, here in Canada. All we got, we got like, we got like 6 million people and there's more than that, you know, 
that uh, six millions unvaxxed, but then there's but then there's like another huge chunk that is pissed. It's like all you have to do is realize if you step out the door, uh, voting's one thing, but just getting involved and starting to lend a voice, things can change relatively quickly. And I mean relatively because we're talking years here; we're not talking days. Yeah, it's it's. A, I think the case of the emperor has no clothes thing. You know, like that. That's a great Hans. I think it's Hans Christian Anderson who wrote that story. But it's it's. There's a lot of truth in that. You know, like everybody in that community was willing to believe that that naked fat ass emperor really had this great <laughs> gown on. You know, and and uh, they're all willing to go along with the myth, except for that honest little kid. And as soon as he he was able to speak out and laugh, it was liberating. You know, to more and more people. And it it just it ended the way it did. And it's a great story. Um, but I think we, we are in that situation where, you know, the, the oligarchy has, has a lot of insecurity because they have a lot of, they're naked. They have a lot of, um, stories that create a sort of shell around their, their protective, you know, what they are to, to keep people from seeing what they want, what they are and how weak they actually are. Because frankly, yes, you know, just to say something quickly, yes, there are long-term conspiracies that go back transgenerationally over centuries and longer, but it's not like they were planning all of that just to get to this one moment. It's not like this is the first time that they've ever tried to get a new world order. That's not a new thing. They've tried and failed many times. And that's actually the substance of, of my books. Like the thing that, that animates my reconstruction of history is looking at all of the times the oligarchy tried to consolidate their power and, and fucked up and, and didn't get what they wanted. How many times? A lot. I mean, the 20th century alone has uh, at least three direct uh, moments, pregnant moments where the oligarchy and all of their, their, their auxiliaries, it's more their auxiliaries, put everything into their um, great reset designs. And that's after World War One. World War One was supposed to be the last big war. And that's what the, the Roundtable movement had taken control of Britain. They ousted Herbert Asquith. They put in Lloyd George and Lord Milner, who were the running the government with Leo Amory and, and Lionel Curtis. They set up the Peace of Versailles. But they also set up the League of Nations. The League of Nations, the covenant of the League of Nations was a great reset covenant. It was supposed to be a post-nation state replacement where everybody would give up their military. They'd give up the right to control their economy. They would all submit to a, a new unelected body of bureaucrats, scientific engineers that would manage the production of society in a Malthusian. At the time, it was a eugenics religion. They were all eugenicists, the belief in purifying humanity of the unwanted attributes of the of, of the poor classes um that's eugenics that's a science of what the rockefeller foundation was funding with planned parenthood uh throughout you know all of canada you know alberta and bc were passing eugenics laws in the 1930s that we sterilized tons of unfit people we continue to do that we still do that actually uh for the natives the first nations people um but they did that all 30 U.S. states by 1932 had passed eugenics laws that were then used as the role model for what Nazis, the Nazis did for their eugenics laws. They were just much more enthusiastic about it. But that was that was how was the League of Nations plan in 1923-24 defeated? It was because you had nationalists like um, Warren Harding, a, a lot of American patriots in America and the Congress and the Senate who all fought to say, no, we're not going to sacrifice our sovereignty for this weird unelected body of people who seem to have been the ones who instrumentalized and created world war one to begin with and in canada you had 
you know, Odie Skelton, the Minister of External Affairs. You had uh, the Laurier liberals who came to power after the defeat of Borden, and they were all unwilling to submit to this one world government. They were working with the Irish Free State uh, movement uh, that had represented Ireland very, very deeply with Michael Collins and that group who all said, no, we're not going to do it. And they had a huge fight and they, they were successful to the point that the oligarchy had to try again. They had to re reconstitute th themselves. They killed Warren Harding. They gave him, they, they say he died of oyster, bad oysters, the president uh, in 1923. Um, he died of bad oysters. Uh, anyway, they, and their, their, their deep state took back control of the United States. They turned the U.S. into a speculative basket case economy under the roaring 20s, deregulation, free trade, worshiping monetarism. You know, everybody was making easy money. And that turned the economy into a bubble. And it just like today, they, they did a controlled demolition in 1929 on the same day. Um, everybody on JP Morgan's preferred clients list was able to sell their stocks short, get a lot of money. And then they, they with you know, then they, they all called in their broker call loans on the same day. So all of the brokers who had been mismanaging people's money, taking out loans they didn't have, all of a sudden were, were expected to pay back those loans. They didn't have that money. They all had to default. And then foreseeably with those defaults was a deleveraging of the system. The stock markets crashed and you had four years of shock therapy to traumatize Canadians, Americans, Europeans, so that they would be mushy enough to accept fascism as their economic miracle solution. And the, the second attempt uh, to a great reset as a solution to the controlled demolition of the economy was the London Bankers Conference of 1933 on economic and monetary reform, where 65 nations, including the US, were all brought on board, were all expected to sign on to a new post-nation state, effectively uh, economic pact, where the Bank of England, the Bank, the, the Bank of International Settlements, were going to be the dominant structures controlling all of the budgets of the world to slowly somehow get out of the depression, as if that could happen. It, it would never work. But um, they almost came close to succeeding. And then what, what happened was Franklin Roosevelt had survived his two assassination attempts and the coup d'etat uh, that was being run against him by, by Wall Street. And he basically pulled the U.S. delegations out of all of the conference. And without the U.S., the conference collapsed. And so we avoided, they, 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 they failed at their second attempt at a one world government back then. And then they tried again with Hitler and Mussolini. And uh, at a certain point, that became something which is a whole podcast unto itself, why that didn't work. Um, but that was supposed to originally, that's why Neville Chamberlain, that's why King George VIII were all pro-Nazis. And most of the Wall Street apparatus, the heads of General Electric, they were all pro-fascist, you know, and um, and that was supposed to be the, the the new world order was a Japanese fascist dominance of, of Asia. Germany would control the slave state, the slave colony of Russia and, and a big chunk of, of Eastern Europe. Britain would work, you know, the British fascists would be more than would be working to control uh India, big chunks of Africa, some of Asia, uh, sorry, some of Europe. Mussolini would have his jurisdictions and the uh, the the British uh, auxiliaries in Wall Street and, and you know, in, in America would control the Americas. And that was sort of the way of the New World Order, the Great Reset was supposed to be under a, a transhumanist religion of eugenics uh, for the elites to manage the, the depopulated masses. And that failed. So it's good to know, like, why they failed. How did the oligarchy screw up every single time and create situations that actually almost destroyed them, too? And looking back to history, every time they, they get what they want, 
and they cons- they do, they crush creativity, they crush freedom, they they consolidate power, and you you get you get that in the Roman Empire is a great a great uh, case study. They cannibalize themselves, they destroy their own means of existence, and then they ultimately end up like a parasite that kills its host. The parasite doesn't do well. So that's 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 what should give people hope in a sense that the oligarchy is actually standing in defiance of natural law. They're not made to be a perpetual state in the universe forever. And uh, today, I mean, we got nuclear bombs spread out over the world. I don't know how, how long the universe will tolerate the existence of this putrid class of, you know, inbreds. I, I don't, I don't know. I hope not too long. Well, <clears throat> man, I tell you what, this is my fault. Uh, to the listener, it's it's me who has to cut the interview short because I have a I have an appointment here I have to go to, and I'm like. You know, you just rattled off like 10 things again that I'm like, what do I even do? You know, like, where do I go? There's, you know, you, you talk about it's a podcast in itself. It's like, well, certainly. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw it to the listener. If you like Maddie, then what you got to do is you got to, you got to text me on the open line. You got to tell me to bring him back because like, uh, there's some, like, I look at, I didn't even touch any of the bullet points I had, right? Like I just, and so there's things that I'm like, I probably already just going to bring you back. That way we can sit and chat about it. But either way, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it up to the listener. The old listener <laughs> always does does what, uh, I mean, if they're fascinated and they want some things back on, let's talk about it, right? Um, before I let you go, uh, we got to do the Crude Master final uh, final question, which is, which is he, he's words, if you're going to stand behind a cause that you think is right, then stand behind it. Absolutely. So what's one thing Matt stands behind? What's that is so big. Uh, one thing I stand behind. Um, <laughs> well, I gotta throw you a fastball at the end, don't I? High heat. Uh, it's, it's too, <laughs> it's too big. Um, I, I mean, freedom of conscience. That's here. I, I will always stand behind freedom of conscience. You know what you're I, gonna do after you you leave this is you're gonna think about that question for a while, yeah, and then you're gonna and then and, and, and then you're gonna yeah. text me like so many people do. And what I'll say to you is, on the second time around, we'll do it again, and we'll see if your answer is still freedom of conscience, and we'll see if you've got a a, a nice little thesis built on what <laughs> on what you stand for. Because uh, I throw it at the end, and I'm like, man, maybe I should start with it. And I'm like, nope, it's the end. And so many guests come on, they get it, and they're like, oh man, that's. And I don't know how many text me after going like, okay, this is what I actually think, but you caught me off guard with a little high heat. Anyways, um, <laughs> I've appreciated you coming on, Matt. This has been, um, well, it hasn't disappointed. It just, it's uh, somehow I have to find a way, I feel like, the next time, assuming there is a next time, to give you, this is what we're going to talk about. And I'm going to hold you there. And I'm going to hold you there and hold you there for an hour and see if, if, uh, cause we, we talked about so much and I'm like, I'm going to have to go back and re-listen to this just like I did to Tom Longo, just like I did to, uh, honestly, Alex as well, Craner. Uh, there's just so much in it that, uh, I've never cared to listen to before or never heard before. Maybe, maybe both. And, uh, certainly, um, uh, it's thought provoking before I let you off here. Uh, if people want to buy your book or, uh, want to follow you, find you, where can they do that? They can go to canadianpatriot.org and uh, the books are very easy to, to find. There's all sorts of buy my book, buy my book all over the page and uh, risingtidefoundation.net. Last thing is um, 
Substack. That's sort of my bread and butter these days. So um, sub, MatthewArrett.substack.com is free. There's a paid up, upgrade option too. And also I know times are tough for a lot of people. Um, if you can't, if you want to read the books and you just don't have the resources, send me an email to um, info at risingtidefoundation.net. I'll, I'll send you happily uh, some free PDFs to, to look over to. Cool. Well, hey, man, I hope you've enjoyed this. I, I certainly, uh, it's been cool to, to sit down with you and, and, uh, and I hope you know, listeners text that line. Cause, uh, I, I, they guide me, you know, they could tell me I'm an idiot and that, that's fine. But, uh, I look forward hopefully to the next time we get to do this. Cause I, I want, you know, one of the things I was hoping to talk to you a lot about was the untold history of Canada. Like I, to me, I'm like, I'm, you know, I've had different guys, uh, actually a guy for a uh, Trudeau of all people, not related to the Trudeaus, but, uh, who lived out in, in Quebec. And, uh, he told me, like we had him on for like two hours and he told me things I'd never heard like ever in any history class in Canada, just about Canada and uh, simple things even. And um, it was, it was fascinating. And I think uh, being Canadian, since you're on the other side, I go like uh, we stare so much at the United States and for right reasons. But at some point I'd, I'd really like to dig into some, some Canada talk and, and, and see what you have to uncover there. But either way, I'll let you out of the room and appreciate you coming on. Oh, I, yeah, I hope the conversation can go. There's a lot, definitely a lot of substance to talk about. So yeah, let me know, say the word. And uh, I hope the audience uh, digs the conversation and wants to hear more. And uh, <laughs> that was, it was fun. It was, yeah. it was a lot of fun. Sounds good, Matt. Thanks for hopping on. All right, Sean. Bye.